0: Have you ever wondered why you can't fly from New York to London anymore on the supersonic Concorde airliner? Have you ever wondered why we didn't go back to the moon or colonize Mars? This is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset and this is my book review of At Our Wits End why we're becoming less intelligent, and what it means for the future. As you can see, this podcast and the article that is associated with it, link below, is going to go deep into this subject that perhaps you've wondered about. You've wondered why we never got flying cars or hovering skateboards. Perhaps you're wondering why... Everything from music to politics to art just seems to be getting dumber and dumber. We're going to go deep into this subject. And a few of you may have noticed that my YouTube channel was terminated, deleted, without warning, explanation, or strikes recently. And this is perhaps also a peripheral effect of we're going to be discussing in this podcast. The great decline of intelligence. So the what I think was pretty intelligent content that my YouTube channel was full of is all gone now. It is deleted. And I would urge you to follow me elsewhere. I have almost all of that content up on bitshoot.com and you can also find it linked around my website. But it's also perhaps kind of a moment where we should just think a bit about our content consumption and how it affects us. And I'd suggest, I'd urge you, in fact, to Do a bit more reading and a bit less watching. Watching YouTube videos is a highly non-optimal format for making you smarter. Reading is a much better way to cultivate the mind. And I'd encourage you to read my book, which is How to Be Cross-Eyed, Thriving Despite Your Physical Imperfection. And I'd also encourage you to read my articles, which are nowadays very thoroughly grammar checked. I have stepped up my game as far as my writing goes. And if you read me in the past and you thought, mm, this is okay, but not blowing my socks off, I suggest that you read my articles again. They're pretty great. Check me out on medium.com backslash Jonathan Roseland. And I'll link below, of course, too. all of these places. So let's talk about At Our Wits End. This book makes the case that the reason we're not accomplishing any of these things, the reason why we aren't building starships that are colonizing the solar system, is because we've hit peak intelligence as a civilization. We're losing our wits and lack the smarts to accomplish anything really noteworthy. The authors who are... Edward Dutton and Michael Woodley of M- Mene, I'm not sure what that place is, they write, Why? Why is it that we used to be able to fly from the USA to London in less than four hours, but now we can't? Why is it that we used to be able to put people on the moon, but now it seems we can't? The answer is surprisingly simple. We are no longer intelligent enough to be able to do these things. We have become too stupid to keep the Concorde in flight, let alone go back to the moon. And you are going to want to check out the article that I link below this podcast. I created a little infographic in it, not one of my huge epic infographics that I hope you've checked out at limitlessmindset.com backslash infographics, but I created a, a simpler infographic illustrating how everybody crucially involved with the supersonic Concorde flight has gotten less intelligent, statistically speaking, over time between the year 1969 when the first Concorde flew and the year 2000 when the last Flight of the Concorde sadly occurred. Please note, when I discuss a touchy subject like intelligence, I feel the need to make it clear that I'm not a part of an elite club speaking down to my audience, speaking down to you. Last time I was IQ tested, I had a perfectly average IQ of 100. I'm flattered that people assume with some regularity that I have a high IQ when I don't. I'm just really well-read and have devoted a lot of time to sharpening my communication skills. Controversy. dun dun, dun, dun. This book delves deeply into the premise that society is getting less intelligent and explains some of the uncomfortable reasons for this. Unsurprisingly, this is the sort of thing that people find offensive. Everything is just so offensive nowadays. So, before you get offended, please remember, quote, the aim of science is to understand the world and to present the simplest explanation based on evidence for what is going on. Science is not there to be reassuring, to make people feel good, or to help bond society together. Those who call for suppression are, in effect, arguing that scientific pursuit is fine until it forces them to question the worldview that they hold to for emotional reasons. Once it does this, it is bad science, or a higher standard of proof should be demanded, or it is immoral, or it is racist, or sexist, or it is one of numerous other vague, indefinite, emotive terms that are deployed to associate the research with deviance and thus intimidate researchers into ideological conformity. So please, my dear listener, resist the urge to make a lot of moral judgments about people and science. Now, I am a big fan of making moral judgments of people. I'm not non-judgmental, but I make moral judgments of people who I know, who I interact with, and who I have to deal with. I resist making moral judgments or assumptions about people I don't know or who I don't have to deal with. Let's start by asking, what is intelligence? And the book delves into this. Intelligence is basically the ability to solve complex problems and do so quickly. IQ scores in childhood will predict many things in adulthood. Higher intelligence predicts Higher education level, higher socioeconomic status, higher salary, better health, greater civic participation, lower impulsivity, and longer lifespan. Lower intelligence predicts criminality and short-term future orientation. In other words, people who are more intelligent tend to live for the future, whereas people who are less intelligent tend to live for the future. Now, intelligence is driven in part by the ability to notice subtle differences among sensory inputs like pitch and color. So intelligent brains have more bandwidth as they can take in more information, which can in turn be used for solving problems more effectively. Intelligence predicts things which are important across culturals. And intelligence is relevant to all cultures. It is negatively associated with criminality, for example. And surely no culture would want people to actively break its rules. A lot of people are questioning, is IQ testing valid? Quote, We know that IQ testing is valid and robust because culture fair IQ tests have similar predictive power across cultures. This is exactly the opposite of what we would predict if the tests were poor quality instruments that were highly subject to cultural bias. Also, IQ test results correlate positively with something objective. That is differences in reaction times. That's right, we're going to be talking about reaction times here. It is widely accepted among leading psychometricians such as Arthur Jensen, Hans Einzig, and Ian Dreary that IQ tests correlate with this objective neurological measure. Lynn and Van Hannon have shown that the average IQ of a country strongly predicts how highly it will score on pretty much every measure of civilization that you can think of. Educational attainment, average earnings, democracy, lack of corruption, nutrition, life expectancy, low infant mortality rate, access to clean water and sanitary conditions, low levels of crime, liberal attitudes, rational attitudes, and even happiness. And you may be listening to me and thinking, yes, Jonathan, but what's the evidence? And for that, you will just have to go and buy this book or take a look at my article because this book was chock full of footnotes and it would be just a bit ...on the podcast listeners' ears if I was listing out every single footnote that is in here because there are, I would say, at least hundreds of footnotes in this book, which is a sign that a real rigorous uh, evidence-backed case is being made... Around the internet, you can find a lot of IQ denial. Mostly, this just comes from political correctness and people not wanting to admit that some people are more intelligent than others because we erroneously assign a moral characteristic to intelligence. And that's incorrect. That's wrong. Somehow, we have gotten the idea that the more intelligent are better than the less intelligent. And they aren't, objectively. While intelligence is important, it's a human characteristic like any other. Are tall people inherently better than short people? No. Uh, Maybe if you're picking a basketball team, they are. But there's nothing inherently or morally superior about being tall or short. Same thing with intelligence. Let's talk about reaction times. Interestingly, there's a very strong connection between intelligence and reaction times. Quote, this correlation with reaction times means that a significant part of being intelligent is simply having a high-functioning nervous system. Reaction times are such a reliable proxy for general intelligence that eminent intelligence researchers such as Arthur Jensen, Hans Einzig, and Ian Drury have promoted them as alternatives to pencil and paper IQ tests. So you could test the intelligence of a potential hire with a reaction time measuring tool like quantifiedmind.com. And this reaction time intelligence IQ connection is giving me all sorts of ideas for something that I don't know maybe you'd see it in like a spy movie where a person is trying to recruit a spy to do some high intelligence demanding kind of thing and they could give them a uh, a test like throw them into a, a a kung fu battle or something like that and see what their intelligence is based upon their reaction times or maybe if you don't want to reproduce with a Low IQ person, you know, you could go out on a date with them and then you could uh, knock their purse on the floor intentionally and see if they are uh, fast enough to grab their purse while it's falling or something like that. There's all sorts of silly, silly little experiments that you could come up with to test someone's reaction times. G equals general intelligence. In discussions of intelligence, you hear the letter G thrown around a lot. This one letter stands for general intelligence. It's best to think of intelligence as a landscape of cognitive capacities and abilities. Some of these cognitive strengths are closer in proximity than others to each other. General intelligence is a measure representing the average topography, if you will, of this landscape. Let's talk about working memory. Another good proxy for G is working memory, or the capacity to manipulate information committed to memory... For the purpose of solving problems. More intelligent people tend to be better at this. This makes sense because if you have a good working memory. The amount of information that you can handle will be greater. Allowing for more complex problems to be solved. One thing that really made me believe in intelligence and IQ. Is that my life has steadily gotten better since I started training my working memory with Dual and Back. This is a software app that is demonstrated to have transfer effects to general intelligence. I've got a bunch more articles and videos about it that I will link to in this article. I do suggest you check it out if you are interested in improving your intelligence, because it would seem that everything about the world is now conspiring to lower your intelligence. What about emotional intelligence? You may have heard about this. In self-help books, you may have heard of emotional intelligence or quote-unquote other types of intelligence. Mostly these alternative forms of intelligence were cooked up to sell feel-good self-help books. If you aren't book smart enough to get a good job, then you can feel better about yourself because you are really good at relating to animals or whatever. To quote from this book, if everyone's intelligent, then it's akin to everyone being tall. The concept simply becomes meaningless. So everyone is not intelligent in their own way. One of the most important points to take away from this is that intelligence is heritable. Quote, we know from studies of identical twins who share roughly 100% of their genes in common that intelligence is strongly heritable. Intelligence is seemingly 80% heritable, meaning that 80% of the variation among individuals is due to genetic factors and overwhelmingly, therefore, people resemble their parents in terms of intelligence. Now, you might be saying, but I always thought that intelligence was environmental. Most of us have been indoctrinated with this liberal dogma that everything is quote-unquote Environmental. If a person isn't very intelligent and makes bad life decisions, it must be because they just didn't have access to education and grew up in a uninspiring place with lots of crime. Quote, at any rate, this objection holds considerably less water now that advance advances in genomics have in fact substantially increased our understanding of the genetics of intelligence, with recent studies having even managed to track down a number of specific alleles. These are simply alternate forms of the same gene, which predict individual differences in intelligence. We have now reached the point where we can actually predict Albeit with low accuracy, a person's intelligence based upon their genome alone. More and more, it's becoming clear that it's false that the environment uh, determines your intelligence. Who your parents are is a much greater factor than your environment, especially when it comes to your intelligence. I actually think that I personally am a great counterexample to the environment-determinant view of intelligence. Here's why. In retrospect, growing up, I had an almost ideal environment to cultivate my intelligence, for the first 12 years of my childhood, we had no television. My mom and dad would read books to us. We would discuss the books we read together. My parents really encouraged us in a wide range of hobbies and pursuits. My mother, in particular, was a very intellectually rigorous religious woman, we would constantly have very deep discussions about practicing our religion, abstract theology, personal growth, human nature, and the state of the world. My parents, while not exactly health nuts, fed us a not-awful diet. They prepared family meals at home daily, and we rarely had junk food. From early adolescence, I worked very hard at developing myself, practicing social skills and building a social circle, doing martial arts, going to the gym, reading books along with drawing and creating art. I grew up in a decent neighborhood and got plenty of stimulation and inspiration from my locale. We would spend time in nature often and travel around the state of Colorado. Environmentally, I had almost everything going for me. While my upbringing has certainly imbued me with a strong work ethic and intellectual curiosity about the world, I ended up having a totally average IQ of 100. If the environment was the sole determining factor in one's intelligence, you would think that someone like me would end up a real genius, not average. Again, I'm not judging a lack of higher intelligence as bad. I now have a pretty great life, so I have a lot to be thankful to my parents for. Let's get back into the data. Historically, the driving force of increasing intelligence was that in the past, rich people had a lot of children. Quote, a rich man married for 20 or more years, fathered 9.2 children. That's right, 9.2 children, while a poorer man would have only 6.4. An advantage to the rich of over 40%. That's just amazing how many children these people had, right? They must have just been banging all the time. It must have just been sex all the time. It's amazing that they they found time to do anything, right? Interestingly, from the book, high-status surnames are those which are Norman. This is talking about in England, okay? Okay in a good old good old great britain so norman such as those that end in ville or are locative the names of places people with these surnames are descended from normans who took the name of their feudal manor surnames which refer to a profession such as bailey cooper Thatcher etc are middle-ranking, while low-ranking surnames tend to end in son, be the name of the father, or referring to physical appearance, like brown, or relate to uh, the part of a village a person lived in, such as hill. So what they're saying is typically in If you're talking about people of Anglo extraction, and if you live in an English-speaking country, you're probably surrounded by a lot of people of Anglo extraction. They're saying that those people that have a last name that ends in ville are going to be from a little bit more of the higher class, historically speaking. And then the people whose last name is like a profession, is like a job, are going to be a bit more middle class. And then the people whose names end in like sun and or if their last name is sun or if it's just like if it's just like a place that you would imagine, like if their last name is something like like hill or river or uh, I don't don't know, alley, (laughs) if it's just a common geographically occurring thing in a town, then that would be indicative of lower class and Totally anecdotal, but I would say from my life, just thinking about this a little bit, the people that I've dealt with that have the last names that end with Vill—they usually seem to be just a bit more sophisticated than the people who have Anglo last names that are ending in Sun or that are like like Tree, <laughs> like Tree, Tree over there, Bush over there, <laughs> the the hill, the the Vills. The DeVilles, those people are usually just a bit more sophisticated. I don't know. Think about, think about your, uh, Anglo social circle and, and, and let me know. I guess leave a comment if that rings true for you. And of course, I think about my own last name, which is Roseland. So that's a place, I suppose. So I guess that's just a, a real middle of the road, middle class type of Anglo last name, which is kind of what I am. Okay. So let's now talk about execution equaling civilization. That's right, from the book. By the early modern era, all felonies carried the death penalty. All felonies carried the death penalty, and this meant that up to 1% of the male population of Europe was executed each generation, with roughly another 1% dying at the scene of the crime or in prison while awaiting trial. Most of these felons were young men, and Contrast this with the pathological sympathy that society now shows to criminals. Once upon a time, I was a criminal. I spent 48 hours in jail. In jail, if you've ever been there, you know. You spend a lot of time just sitting around talking with the other guys that are in there with you. And I noted two things about the other inmates that surrounded me. First of all, most were habitual repeat offenders. And secondly, sadly, most were fathers. So those j- those criminal genes, they are getting passed on. That's what I learned from jail. What about the Flynn effect? I bet you have heard of the Flynn effect. Quote, The Flynn effect is the phenomena whereby average IQ scores have increased throughout the 20th century. You've probably heard people speaking optimistically about the Flynn effect. Saying, look, everyone is gradually getting smarter. The world is getting better. Utopia is inevitable. Unfortunately, the Flynn Effect is not really evidence of the evolution and transcendence of humanity, despite what you may have heard on one of those 18-minute TED Talks. It's reflective of greater specialization of intellectual capacities. I'll quote from the book here. This this part was complicated. This part was even a a bit challenging for little old me with my hundred IQ to wrap my head around. Therefore, if they were sufficiently strong in this ability or a small set of abilities, then it could be more than enough to lead them to achieving a very high IQ score, despite the fact that there had been no increase in their general intelligence. Indeed, their general intelligence might have decreased, but the massive increase in specific abilities could be enough to not only hide this crease, but show overall huge increase. This is the Flynn effect. This would be entirely in line with the fact that the increases are only on certain specific parts of the IQ test and that these are typically the least G-loaded parts of the test. It has been shown that as people become more intelligent as IQ goes up, the relationship between the different cognitive abilities become weaker. This is termed Spearman's Law of Diminishing Returns, after Charles Spearman, who we encountered previously, who first described this effect in 1927. In other words, as people become more intelligent, they become more specialized in the nature of their intelligence. And you might be saying, como what, Jonathan? As we used to say back in high school, putting a little bit of Spanish and English together. So if this confuses you, I'm going to just draw you back to my thing that I want you to visualize when you think of intelligence, which is a landscape. So you want to visualize there's this landscape, which represents the wide array of different cognitive abilities. And some of them are quite different to each other, but some of them are pretty closely related to each other. And you're going to have cognitive abilities that are distant from where the majority of your cognitive abilities are located. So you can kind of imagine that there's like maybe like a town on this In this landscape, in the middle of this landscape, there's a town where the people, the hills, the trees, etc. They're kind of concentrated around this town. And so the cognitive abilities there in the vicinity of this town are going to be what the scientists call G-loaded, because they are more, uh, they're more likely to correlate to your general intelligence, which is the, which is what we refer to when we're talking about intelligence. But then you're also going to have kind of like some distant mountains. And in the landscape of intelligence, this is going to represent like real specific type of abilities. So you can imagine something like maybe like programming a, an app or doing some type of real abstract technological Technological work, which is a form of intelligence that isn't going to translate very well to a whole lot of other things in life. You know, I'm pretty good at developing uh, websites, for example, but I'm really pretty useless when it comes to fixing a car. That, the website development skill set, is something that is distant from the uh, general intelligence and so these distant abilities are dragging up the average IQ score because a IQ, an average IQ is an average. It's not a median. And that's why we're seeing the Flynn effect of IQ going up while general intelligence is going down. If that still doesn't make sense to you, then I would just suggest that if you're really curious about this, read the book. Let's talk some more about it declining intelligence quote the academics of the year 2000 were the school teachers of the year 1900 to that I say have you seen academics of the current year they look like just blathering idiots who could barely tie their own shoes uh, so maybe maybe not I would I would take an even less sympathetic view of the academics of the current year. But I I digress. To get back to the passage, the school teachers of the year 2000 would have been the factory workers, the average people of the year 1900. The office workers and the policemen of the year 2000 were the farm laborers of the year 1900, those who were around 10 to 15 IQ points below average at that time. The low-level security guards and shop assistants of the year 2000 were probably in the workhouse, on the streets, or dead in 1900. The substantial long-term unemployed or unemployable, the dependent underclass of the year 2000 simply didn't exist back in the year 1900. That's something to think about isn't it? Let's talk about the creativity crisis. Quote, since 1990, creativity scores had significantly decreased. In other words, people are becoming less creative. This is what might be expected to happen if people were becoming Less intelligent. Declining creativity should have real-life implications, especially in terms of the quality of the arts and environment. Contrasting the art of the past to the present, quote, art had heretofore uh, focused on religion. It now begins to focus on simply portraying ordinary life and then portraying feelings, subjective perception and a sense of confusion and perhaps hopelessness. I was recently talking with my brother on Skype and my brother is this really talented videographer and filmmaker and he was telling me about how he he had just shot his first like full-blown a professional more or less independent film and i was like wow that's great congratulations you know that's a new thing that's an accomplishment hopefully it gets picked up by a film festival and hopefully some sex some success results from that and my brother was telling me about this movie uh, that he shot it's a short film maybe i'll share it on social media when he's got it produced and he was telling me about how the film is kind of focusing on like the angst of being a millennial in the current year in America and all of the frustrations and all the bullshit that the, a millennial in the current year in the United States of America has to deal with. And that's what his uh, creative project, that's the theme that he picked. And so that would be really in line with what they are saying here about creativity in a society of declining intelligence. And I'll quote from, uh, you may remember, in the iconic book Atlas Shrugged, there's the character John Galt, and he announces that he's going to turn off the motor of the world. It was one of the more icon- iconic passages of one of the most iconic books of all time. And if you are right now scratching your head saying, you know, I think I've heard of Atlas Shrugged. Who is John Galt? Hmm. Who is John Galt? I think I might have heard of him, but mm, who is John Galt? Well, that's just more evidence of the decline of intelligence. If you're asking that question, hmm, who is John Galt? Please, I implore you, cancel your Netflix subscription and consider doing what I'm doing right now, which is taking smart drugs. Of course. Quote, G underpins Civilization and is the motor for the development of civilization. Therefore, it is neither doom-mongering nor speculation to assert that the decline of G will lead to the reversal of civilization. We have firm evidence with which to make this assertion, and we have seen that G is indeed declining... And there is a substantial amount of evidence for this, all of it pointing in the same direction. It logically follows, therefore, that civilization will decline. And you may be saying, Jonathan, this is just all so depressing. I I don't know if I can go on with this podcast. How much more, how much more will you persist in, in these black pills? And keep listening, keep listening. There's some good news at the end. I promise. I promise. Okay, let's talk about macro innovation. Quote, It is perhaps difficult for us to get our heads around the pace of the change during the Industrial Revolution because it would have been so dramatic. Someone born in 1770 would have grown up in a world little different from the year 14. 70. Transport would be via horse and almost everything had to be done by hand. Production was already beginning to mechanize because James Hargraves had invented the spinning jenny in 1764. An early steam engine had already been forged but had not yet caught on. However, if that person had lived until just 1804, they would have seen the invention of the electric telegraph, the steamship, the submarine, the circular saw, the steam roller, a reliable clock, the battery, the bicycle, and the steam-powered locomotive. The world of 1804 would have been dramatically different from that of 1770 or 1470. And what do we get now? Now we get micro-innovations. We don't get macro-innovations anymore. All we get now is slightly better smartphones and ever more addictive photo-sharing apps. I was born in 1985, and the only macro-innovation I've seen arise in my life and transform society is the Internet, And a lot of times, it seems like a very questionable transformation. It seems like there may be more negative than positive with it, but I certainly haven't made up my mind about that. Yet, you'll want to check out the book review that I did of the book, The Shallows. Let's talk about why this is happening. Quote, One of the effects of civilization is to diminish the rigor of the application of the law of natural selection. It preserves weekly lives that would have perished in barbarous lands. The sickly children of a wealthy family have a better chance of living and rearing offspring than the stalwart children of a poor man, poor one. And that's a quote from, I think, Charles Darwin. More from Charles Darwin. He discussed the reversal of selection with respect to socially valued traits in his second major book, which was called *The Descent of Man*. And he, Charles Darwin, had some things that would nowadays be uh, politically incorrect. I'm sure if if Charles Darwin showed up today and and uh, told us about what his, his research was. Indicating he would have been uh, kicked off of college campuses and had his YouTube account terminated, no doubt. In essence, Darwin argued that as societies become more advanced, they become more compassionate towards their weaker members. Darwin expressed extreme pessimism about the future of humanity, telling Wallace, quote, It is notorious that our population is more largely renewed in each generation from the lower and middle than from the upper classes. Darwin also spoke of the large number of children of what he called the scum and the inevitable deterioration as a consequence of the qualities that were needed to build up civilization. Let's talk about fertility versus intelligence. If you don't have the time or inclination to read this book, just go watch the first few minutes of the movie Idiocracy. I'll link to it. It really captures why intelligence is decreasing. Quote, Fisher's law was that civilizations collapse due to a negative relationship between intelligence and fertility. Here we reach the crucial question, why is intelligence negatively associated with fertility in industrialized societies? Especially in resource-rich civilization, the more intelligent half of the bell curve are less inclined to have children. Quote, in a society with no welfare state, children would be an insurance policy in old age. They would take care of you once you were too elderly to work, assuming you lived long enough to become too elderly to work. I've often thought it was a really bad idea to have all the government programs taking care of old people and paying them pensions. I've always thought that having no social safety net for the old people would encourage better parenting. I know personally that my plan is to be such a good parent that one day my own adult children will be really happy to take care of me and, I don't know, feed me my uh, old person baby food, if if that's what I need. You probably think that education in general and empowerment of women is good for society. I would love to think so myself. But the author makes a very strong case for how these two things are drivers of the intelligence decline. Quote, education is therefore one key factor that creates selection against the genes responsible for cognitive ability, which indicates that intelligence will decline over time. Another important contributory factor to the negative association between intelligence and fertility in industrial societies has been the rise of feminism and, in particular, the opening up of the professions to women. All the feel-good indoctrination that we get about the primacy of education and empowerment of women ignores the reality That when you really encourage young people in their 20s to focus on personal and career growth, the more intelligent will pour enormous amounts of time and energy into finding themselves instead of having children and forming families. So I've certainly observed this in the large circle of friends and acquaintances I had in my late teens and 20s. I bet it's kind of the same for you. If you think about your friends, uh, your social circle, what you've observed just in your own life since your late Teens since your 20s. So, I had a very diverse group of friends. Some were very ambitious and sharp. They studied very hard to get a real education in university. They worked hard in challenging jobs to get their careers started or devoted themselves to entrepreneurship. Then there were my friends who were lovable losers that were just people that were fun to party with. They would often be in a bit of legal trouble. They lived in kind of crappy neighborhoods. They would use illegal drugs recreationally. They wouldn't hold down serious jobs for long. And they were always up to go out drinking on a Wednesday night. So I'm 34 years old now, and here's the consistent trend. The lovable losers that were in my life would be casually dating someone, and there would be an unintentional pregnancy. Sometimes they would stay together with their baby's daddy or baby's mama, but more often than not, there would be a lot of drama, and they would end up a single parent. On the other hand, of my ambitious friends, after about a decade and a half, almost none are parents. In their mid-twenties, parenthood was the furthest thing from their domain of concerns. Many even shunned dating or you know, serious boyfriend-girlfriend relationships as a waste of time. To them, having children was like a manned mission to Mars. It was something that they wanted eventually, but it was a long ways off, and they really weren't planning for it. Occasionally, I get dinner or have a long Skype conversation with my old, ambitious Friends, they are all now engrossed in very exciting careers or entrepreneurial projects, but very few have children and few got married. They share their dating woes with me and shrug their shoulders in exasperation with how damn complicated dating is in the current year. In my own life, I can really see how the less intelligent are genetically outcompeting the more intelligent. Let's talk about the welfare state. Unsurprisingly, socialism is bad for intelligence. Quote, we have already seen that unplanned pregnancy and by extension pregnancy by single mothers, which is generally unplanned, is associated with lower intelligence. Richard Lynn has argued that the welfare state itself also aids the process of reducing the average intelligence of the population. Speaking about people who are dependent on the welfare state. So they are... Intelligent enough to deliberately have a large number of neglected children in order to play the system, meaning that the welfare state encourages their fertility and contributes to declining intelligence. However, they are not intelligent enough to realize or have the foresight to care about the fact that their behavior may lead to the collapse of the very system they rely upon if too widely adopted. And means that the system is potentially unsustainable in the long term. Helping the poor can be understood to some extent to mean helping those who have relatively low G to survive and procreate. So a few years ago, when I was in Bucharest, Romania, Vlad the Impaler's hometown, I heard the story of how Vlad dealt with unemployment. In Bucharest, there were a number of layabout Romanian men who were not contributing to society. Vlad, who was the king, the guy in charge, went to them and offered them jobs. And just one of the men the next day went to knock on the gates of Vlad's castle and started his new job. The rest of the men were sitting around drinking rakia and catcalling Romanian women, I assume. Vlad then had the rest of the unemployed men slaughtered because they weren't contributing and they might accept silver from the Turks, from the Ottomans, to spy and undermine Romania. Today in Bucharest, Vlad is regarded as a hero because he held back the conquest of Europe and Christendom by the Ottoman Empire. So I'm not saying here that we should deal with the unemployed in our society the way Vlad did. I'm not quite that that hardcore of a a right-winger. But we need to find some balance between rationality and unbridled womanly compassion and altruism in dealing with those who can't really take care of themselves. Let's move on to another topic that was interesting in the book. And you really should read this book because this topic, it went really deep on it, and I'm just going to scratch the surface here, which is cycles of civilization. Quote, societies rise when they are religious, have a deep reverence for the past and for older generations are prepared to engage in noble acts of self-sacrifice and follow clear moral rules. These qualities ensure that they have a sense of superiority, a sense of their own destiny, that they are a cohesive community and that they can be motivated to defend their society, even unto death when they lose those qualities and as i'm reading this i'm thinking about the movie 300 if you remember that great movie 300 with Gerard, Gerard Butler or whatever that guy's name was and you think Gerard about Butler yes yes that guy and you think about him lining up there with the other spartans to lay down their lives to fight for the survival of their civilization that's what they're talking about here When they lose these qualities, which they inevitably do, then they fail. People become too rich. And when this happens, they lose their fear of the gods and with it, their selflessness and community spirit, their sense of eternal destiny, their reverence for older generations, and the strict moral rules which bind them together. The book also talks about religion, and it identifies religion as a phenomena of genetic group selection. Quote, religion can be understood as a matter of group selection when two roughly similar groups are in conflict because they are expanding. There will be group selection for religiousness the more religious group under these conditions will triumph. The most successful religions strongly encourage baby making. Just just go ask some religious people in your life and they'll be like, yes, yes, making babies, very important. We believe in it. So in, in religions, in the successful religions at least, they don't exhort you to focus on your career while distracting yourself with consumerism until you are 36 years old and fucking lonely. And this is no coincidence. Making, making babies works. Uh, religion cultivates civilization, but a lot of times, as the book points out there's a bug in the theolo- theological code like the catholic prohibition of the most intelligent and educated in the priest class from having families if uh, catholicism if christ if that the iteration of christianity that existed uh, after the after the decline of the roman empire was not Prohibiting the most intelligent who could read, who could learn a second language, Latin. If Christianity was not prohibiting, prohibiting them from having children, we would have seen an effect in Christian Europe similar to what happened with a Jewish population where the most intelligent was having a lot of children. And we probably would have seen something like airplanes being invented in, who knows, maybe the 14th century. In the book, he details how a number of great civilizations, like Rome, China, uh, the Golden Age of Islam, went through very similar cycles of declining intelligence. And there was a guy named Polybius, Polybius? and this was a 2nd century BC historian, and he wrote about the waning, classical Greek civilization at that time. Here's what he had to say. For men have fallen into such a state of pretentiousness, avarice, and indolence that they do not wish to marry, or if they married to rear the children born to them, or at most, as a rule, have one or two of them. And the author quotes from the Bible. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And that's Ecclesiastes 1.9. Let's talk about love, quote-unquote love, as a dysgenic agent. Something I had hoped the book would comment on is how love is making us less intelligent. Increasingly, we are making our reproductive choices based upon quote-unquote love. And it is my contention that it's making us dumber. And I put love in quotation marks here because modern love is really selfish, impetuous, impatient, lust, and infatuation. I think that in the past, when resources were a lot more scarce, I think we had a lot more real love. Back then, young men and young women probably were a bit more pragmatic and rational about their reproductive choices and their choices in partner, whereas in the current year, most of us are slaves to our most hedonistic of urges. The 20th century has insightfully been called the century of the self. And it certainly looks like the 21st century will be a similarly narcissistic 100 years. When Hollywood movies, pop music, and pop psychology have convinced almost all of us that the most important thing is to follow our heart and do what feels good. We are going to, more often than not, make personally disastrous and societally dysgenic reproductive choices. Recently, I was reading a engrossing World War II spy novel. This is the kind of fiction that I just love. In it, the protagonist makes a deal with this extravagant Greek millionaire. The Greek millionaire has an extraordinarily beautiful wife who flirts with the protagonist, and he decides to risk everything to have her She eventually succumbs and leaves her provider, the millionaire, for an exciting new lover, the protagonist. The Nazis are about to invade Greece, and the millionaire has prepared a very comfortable and very safe yacht to escape, to bring his beautiful wife with him. Some place where they can very safely and comfortably live and probably have a bunch of children, right? Um, whereas the protagonist's plan is to, you know, hide in the Greek countryside, join the resistance, you know, make some bombs in a basement somewhere, and fight the Nazis in the ensuing asymmetrical guerrilla war that goes on. And who does the beautiful woman with the great jeans choose to go with? Well, she chooses to go with the roguish protagonist, of course, right? And it makes for good fiction, but it's also a a perfect illustration of our short-sighted, selfish decision-making, a.k.a. love, steering us into personal and civilizational catastrophe. Here's the conclusion, and, and a bit of a silver lining, I told you. It's not it's not all negative here, it's not all reason to be depressed here. Quote After all, we saw in chapter one that we used to be able to get from London to New York in three and a half hours, but now we can't. We're too old as a civilization. And therefore, our level of general intelligence is not as high as it once was. So it would be too dangerous to relaunch Concord. When we were younger as a civilization and brighter, we could go to the moon. We can talk wistfully about this, much as the elderly reminisce on what they could do when they were younger. But we don't have the skill to do it anymore. It would be far too dangerous for us as a civilization, I'll add. That's something to think about, isn't it? It's easy to dismiss a book like this as a black pill, a pessimistic inevitability that we can't do much to avoid, which is perhaps best ignored for the sake of our sanity. Well, for those with the mental fortitude to persist, beyond every red pill or black pill is a white pill, something to be optimistic about. If you're listening to this, if you're the kind of person that reads my work, you're probably on the right side of the intelligence bell curve. If you're a young person, relatively young person, with an IQ over 100, the major takeaway for you should be to redirect some of that time and energy that you are pouring into your career or passion projects into having children. You're going to be alive for 70, 80, or 90 years, or even longer, hopefully a lot longer if you're a biohacker. You have a lot of time to work on your career and personal development, but you really only have a 20-minute window when you are fit to make babies and raise them. If you're a woman, you really should be ending your baby-making career before age 40. If you're a man, you can make babies a lot longer. But 45-year-old you or 55-year-old you is not going to have the youthful energy or or the inclination, even if you are a, a, a proper biohacker and you do everything so that you have maximum energy, you're just not going to have that youthful side of you at age 47 to chase toddlers around at the playground and really enjoy fatherhood the way that, say, 32 or 35-year-old you might. The silver lining that the author offers is, quote, it is possible that a genius will come up with ideas regarding how to break the cycle of civilization, just as they once came up with a way for pretty much breaking the Malthusian cycle. Boy, the Malthusian cycle is really interesting. I'll link to a podcast about that. It's something worth understanding a bit better. Throughout history, geniuses have figured out how to fix really big civilization-threatening problems. If we in the current year can encourage geniuses to do their thing, give them space and the resources they need to work, they will figure out a solution to this whole bloody mess of a civilization that we're facing with declining intelligence. And you might be saying, Okay, So I've followed the stuff here in the biohacking sphere corner of the internet for a while, and I'm thinking, but wait, won't transhumanism save us from this? With technology like CRISPR, we should eventually be able to gene edit babies for intelligence, right? And that's correct. That's a potential application of gene editing technology, and it might reverse the trend of declining intelligence. But GMO babies are going to have all their own issues, and that's going to have totally unpredictable downstream effects on civilization. The book that I also reviewed, I'll suggest that you check out the video that I I made a cool kind of like documentary style video with a bunch of neat animations that you can find linked. This book makes a very strong case that gene editing will result in a dystopian replacement and dumbing down of humans in the very far future. Although, I'm not sure about that. I debated with the author that this might not be worse than the alternative. But here's the big point to take away from this. Ultimately, we don't need transhumanism to save us from idiocracy in real life. This problem of declining intelligence could be fixed culturally. We understand the current intelligent collapse so well that we probably won't face a thousand-year dark age, like after the fall of the Roman Empire. Things happen very fast now, and you may have the opportunity to play a part in shaping a new cultural order that cultivates intelligence. If we had a culture that permanently banished the dysgenic welfare state and strongly encouraged young people to to do three things. They would be to get educated, to be healthy and moral, and finally to have children early and often, forming a family with a virtuous partner in their 20s. If we had a culture that, that really strongly encouraged those three things, It would not be very many generations before geniuses solved some of the most intractable problems our species currently faces. And we would begin to turn our collective gaze towards impregnating the other planets in our solar system with human brilliance. And that's my book review of At Our Wits Ends. Do check out the book if you've listened to this in completion. Then you sound like you are of a bit higher intelligence. And I hope that you are going to, in your near future, be enjoying some uh, recreational, horizontal adult activities, as I will. I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and I look forward to a continued conversation with you.